Welcome to Civil Discourse, a podcast where participants are free to share their ideas, empathize with other perspectives, and who intend to advance to a better solution to fix a societal ill. We will focus on topics that are particularly complicated. In a time where information is from sources more opinionated than ever, our mission is to find solutions and goals to accelerate the nation's progress with cultural impunity. I'm your host, Todd Furness. I'm just enormously elated to have an old friend and, and uh, podcaster uh, and venture capitalist, Vic Gatto, uh, on the line. He's got a company we're going to talk about and also an interesting approach to healthcare. And he's got a lot of insights that I want to dig into. Vic, thank you so much for joining me today. Todd, excited to be here, uh, trading back and forth. You were on my podcast previously. I'm on this. Excited to, to see where it goes. One could say you gave me my start, Vic, so I'm forever. <laughs> I don't know about that, but uh, I was there at the early stages. Yeah. So uh, you have a podcast and you have a, a VC firm. Talk a little bit about each of those for just a second, just kind of frame the conversation. And then I want to talk about what you're seeing in the marketplace um, in terms of disruptive uh, approaches, either in delivery or in business process or in business model, but start with kind of an overview of what you do and how you do it. Yeah, so I, I've been a VC for 22 years. Um, I was an entrepreneur before that. So I've been in sort of innovation and growth and helping companies get uh, started and scale for a long time, um, always in healthcare. So um, I, I really like healthcare. It has the uh, unique characteristic of you can really um, impact people's life because it, it affects everyone. We're all patients and caregivers and um, eventually going to be in a hospital. We start in a hospital and we end in a hospital usually. Um, and it's really profitable. It's, it's a huge $4 trillion market. It's the largest market that is not completely controlled by the government although it's large, you know, over half is controlled by the government. Um, and so that, that's why I like healthcare. You have that sort of dual threat of really helping impact people's lives and making a obscenely big pile of money, which, you know, as a VC, I need to do. Or, uh, at, so, least, or at least earn a living, right? Yeah, yeah. I earn a squeak of living now uh, with my investments. Uh, and, and probably uh, five years ago or so, I started feeling like um, there was this big change coming to healthcare that no one really knew about. And of course, you know, because you were on the podcast, but I started talking about it at first. And then I started publishing about this health storm that was coming. The podcast was called The Health Storm, um, trying to warn people and get them ready for the change that was going to come with the boomers and the millennials and technology. Uh, all kind of collaborating together to make a big impact. Of course, healthcare, um, we spend the most money in healthcare. It's the biggest uh, source of employment and it affects all of our lives. And so I was really passionate about that and was trying to tell the story for a long time. You helped me uh, tell the story. And then of course, COVID happened and, and uh, the storm came much differently than I thought it was going to come, but it accelerated all those things uh, very quickly. Um, and that, that has been painful, of course, for all of us, but our society has muddled through and now we're coming out the other side. So 
we each each of us had our own lens through which we viewed the COVID dynamic, um, and you know we can each look at it as uh, how it affected our daily lives, our work, um, our ability to move freely about the country, our obligation to wear masks, uh, the persistent uh, um, encouragement, shall we say, to get vaccinated. Um, what, what, if anything, did you have as from your lens, what did you, what was your big takeaway from the impact of COVID on the industry as you see it? So I, I had, um, responsibility at some level for about 120 portfolio companies going into COVID. Um, and these are all high growth, uh, healthcare companies. And so my lens on it was from that point of view, some of them were um, benefited from COVID because um, they were doing telehealth or something like that. Others were crushed by COVID because they were um, launching a new contact lens and people didn't get their eyes checked for a year and a half. Yeah. And so trying to help those teams of uh, management teams navigate that with you know pressures and changes that no one had expected was what my sort of job was for a long time and it was uh, there was vastly different experiences based on where you were in the delivery of care um, and so I was I was trying to help them all with you know reasonable success um, but but if you don't have any revenue come in for 18 months, there's not a lot of businesses that can survive that. So we didn't have 100% success, but we had good success with it. So what are the most, uh, you know, what, do you, what do you think that's really disruptive coming down the pike here in the early stages? And we should explain what venture capital really means uh, in order to have the conversation. So venture capital means you're starting, you're starting with investments in companies that, are, that have no revenue coming in. They have no EBITDA, they're meaning no earnings because they have no revenue, uh, but they do have the benefit of expense uh, and you try and, and keep that expense as low as possible so you, can, so you can stretch the dollars and you can launch either the, the, the technology, the application or the service offering uh, when, uh, when it's fully baked and get it into the market. And so typically there is a kind of an angel round and then there's a, a series A and there may be subsequent series alphabetically named uh, in the mix, but there's certainly usually a, an angel round or a friends and family round, and then a series A and then beyond. Is that a fair description of-, of Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's fair. So um, my, my firm, it's called Jumpstart, we have several different funds for different stages within that overarching spectrum. There's a, there's a fund that would help when your rich uncle runs out of money and the friends and family is finished and uh, you still need to go forward, we have a solution for that. Um, and then as you sort of, I, call, I would call that seed, um, that's even before the series A that you're referring to. Sure. And then we have two different funds in the series A stage, which should be, um, there's a proof of concept. There's a reason to believe this could work. There's a few, uh, times when it has been implemented with a customer or two, but the revenue is is very small, 
but someone is not a blood relative has paid for this thing. Um, and then my job is to try to standardize that and, and build a build a business around it, build the systems. How do we bring customers in in a repeatable fashion? How do we deliver the service so that we always get the same quality, same outcomes, and we can we can be predictable about building building a business? And so that that's my that's my job with uh, really innovative new new approaches to healthcare solutions. And so, what are you seeing coming down the pipe? That's that's uh, or areas of. So what's what's really interesting to me is that you know I've, I've been doing this for a long time. Right? So. Um, I'm here in Nashville, and the, the basic thesis always has been, let's understand the demand drivers in this space. So what I mean by that is uh, the health systems or the insurance companies or large employers, what do they want to be changed? What are they looking for that would be new and better? Um, that's the demand for innovation. They're, they're sort of wanting a new solution. Um, versus the supply would be entrepreneurs. You see them on Shark Tank or you see them all, all around creating new things. Um, and I I've always wanted to start with the demand side because that's really where, sure. where I can risk mitigate it. And so I work uh, with, in Nashville, there's a lot of hospital systems. I talk to them about what they're looking for for, for decades, for a long time before COVID. Um, they were interested in innovation on the periphery. So like, I want innovation along that doesn't change that much, right? So like, I'd like to do billing better. I'd like to, uh, I don't know, I'd like to communicate with my patients over email. And so like they had interests and they had demands, but it was not in the core, right? It was sort of a, around the edges because the health systems felt like the operations were working pretty well. Uh, very labor-intensive manual process. I don't know if you've been to a hospital recently. I mean, you're involved in, in Parkland, I think. Uh, but there's a lot of people running around. It's the only industry that still uses faxes as like a core thing to do. Um, maybe there's a fax somewhere in the office here, but I don't actually I know where it is. Um, and so for a long time, for 18 years, I was working around the periphery and bringing solutions. Um, and then COVID happened, right? And the, and the two big things that happened in COVID uh, were that the, the industry and the patients immediately did not want to come in in person anymore because it, it wasn't safe. At least for, for six months, it wasn't safe. And the government, the regulatory bodies, had to decide, is it permissible to allow medical visits to be done over telehealth? And if so, how, what would we allow? And, and it has been, there's been a technical capability for 10 years to be able to do that. But there wasn't the regulatory infrastructure, the licensors cross state lines and getting docs paid was not in place and no one really wanted to worry about it. We're pretty happy making the patients drive in and, and doing it until COVID. And so that, that sort of spurred or catalyzed 
that was the first big change that I saw as it catalyzed the clearing in like two weeks, the government, because of public health concerns, changed all of those regulatory uh, apparatus to allow for telehealth, telemedicine to be done and facilitated and paid for in a legal way. And, you know, it turns out everyone is happier. The, the patients are happier, the docs are happier, the insurance companies are happier. Everyone is happier with it. Um, and I don't know without a crisis if we would have got there that quickly, but, but it's immaterial. We, we, we all came to realize that, I mean, even my parents, you know, who maybe aren't the most tech forward leaning folks, they now want to see their docs on their phone because it's just easier. Why do I want to drive downtown and park and do all that? Yeah. So what's interesting about that is that uh, some states, like for example, California, had said, "Look, we're you know we're uh, requiring, if not uh, or allowing, uh, Medicare treatments to be made using telehealth," and so that's been in place for for years now. But nationally, what happened was President Trump issued this edict through an executive order saying, you know, we're going to pay, for, we, all the insurance companies have to uh, reimburse for, for telehealth visits. And what was interesting about that, it was the insurance companies were whispering behind the scenes, the day that executive order expires, uh, you know, we're going to turn this off because we're, we're they're so fearful of fraud. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see what happens when, you know, the We've kind of declared, but not really declared that the pandemic's over and, you know, some people are not wearing masks, some people are, but um, as a general rule, the executive order is still in place. And the question is going to be, okay, what happens when that executive order expires? Are we still going to, or are the insurance companies still going to reimburse for that? Do you have any idea of that? Because I, 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 I have a prediction. I, I don't know that I um, have any uh, inside information, but my, my guess is that, um, I mean, listen, I can trade a stock. I can move, I can send you money. I can, I can do lots of transactions that need to be secured over my phone or over the internet. And no one wants fraudulent transactions. I mean, I don't think any physicians or health systems or insurance company or patients want that. Of course, there are people that will try to break the rules. We need to put in solutions that prevent that, just like in banking and in the stock market, we don't wanna have fraudulent transactions, but that, that is a technical solution that needs to be put in place. It's not acceptable for you know, NASDAQ to say, we can't process this, so you, we're going backwards, right? So I don't think that should be the case in healthcare. I think. We have to solve and prevent fraud and we will. And I have plenty of entrepreneurs that are happy to step up and do that. Um, and the, the real key I think is that we have all learned that this is a better way to deliver care, not in all cases, but, but for some interactions. And I, I think that the insurance companies are saying that when what they really mean, my, my connections really would like to have there be uh, two different price points because the cost to deliver the service is certainly different, right? You, you don't have all the capital expenditure, all the infrastructure, all the people 
if you are doing a telemedicine visit. And so I think it is fair to, to say that if the costs are dramatically lower, then the reimbursed rate can be lower. Um, that's what they will be talking about, I think, as they go through this. The other thing that, that I have heard that is just interesting is um, many of the payment processing systems, the network pricing, the adjudication systems are not designed to have several levels of service for different sites of care. And so depending on which plan you talk to, uh, they are not ready or they would not be ready for a year or they would not be ready for five years to actually have two prices. So even though they want there to be multiple prices, when you actually talk through, okay, let's say everything's 80%, they can't facilitate that. So, you know, oh, it's, it's, really, it's really interesting. I had a, I had a, uh, a conversation with an insurance company, I'll, I'll keep nameless at the moment. And I said, hey, there's seasonality in this business. We can offer you discounts if you can drive patients in these months. And they said, not only no, but we're not even going to take the issue on board because we can only compel. We don't know how to incent. Yeah, so I yeah. said, wait a minute. So you can actually reduce the cost of care, which would benefit everybody, but you don't know how to do that. No, we don't understand. And we, and our systems wouldn't be able to handle the pro, the price changes, but you, you raised an interesting point, which is, um, essentially as I hear it, maybe not what you're intending to say is, a Medicaid and Medicare reaction. In other words, if the cost goes up or down, that may or may not affect price. But you're saying if the cost go down, goes down, it should affect price or reimbursable, reimbursable rates. But what I found is something a little bit counterintuitive. You may or may not be aware of this, but I've been on kind of a rant about the idea of returning privity of contract to the patient provider relationship. Uh, and what that means is that you pay cash at the time of service and um, to the extent possible, you, you don't use insurance companies because insurance companies are where all of the cost comes in. And essentially what happens is you're paying the most possible. We as Americans are paying the most possible for healthcare because we're paying a premium every month and 80 to 90% of Americans never reach their deductible, which means that they're paying full retail for the for the care that they're getting, the routine care that they're getting, and they're still paying the premium and paying for insurance is by very, is very definition, payment in advance for something statistically improbable to occur. And well, so that, that's what insurance means, but that's not what health insurance means. Health insurance is, mis, is a misnomer, right? It's not, it's not that you're, it's, 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 you know, us all collectively sharing the cost of a few people that are very sick um, because that is good for society, but none of us decided that. Um, it just, I mean, it all, it all evolved um, through large employers after the Second World War um, as a benefit, and then it's kind of grown since then. Right, and I, I wrote this about this in my book. It, 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 private health insurance came into Vogue as a result of FDR in 1943, who presciently asserted, assumed that we were going to have a problem with labor shortage. And in fact, he was right. In 1944, unemployment 
uh, was 1.3% when you had everybody in the workforce that was able to be in the labor force at the time. And the labor force was defined as anybody over 10 years old. And today it's defined as everybody under 16. And we have about 61% of the labor force actually working. So I completely agree with you there. But when I say it's statistically improbable to occur, it's statistically improbable to occur to you. In other words, I pay, you know, my, my premiums are outrageous. I pay $3,000 a month. Now I have a very low deductible, but there's there's no chance that you know collectively it's or I should say it's very unlikely that my collectively my wife and I are going to suffer you know thirty six thousand dollars worth of healthcare costs in the in the course of the year on top of my deductible and on top of my copay. Well, the, re um, the reason I went there is mean take take uh, take automotive insurance. Okay, like that that is. Um, a risk pool, I pay in, you pay in, we all pay into the risk pool and would have different deductibles based on our tolerance for risk. And it is insuring against a very improbable outcome of me getting in a car accident or, or having my car catch on fire or something would happen to my car. The odds of that are very low and therefore the, the cost is relatively low. The insurance companies, of course, make a profit on it um, but when i go to get gas i don't claim that the insurance company should pay when i need a new tire i don't claim so like the general maintenance that is highly predictable i get gas every 12 days and if i drive more it'll be in 10 days but the insurance company has nothing to do with that and in healthcare, we have included all of the maintenance aspects into the insured product. Well, you know, do we really? I mean, we don't. We don't get. I mean, gas would be the functional equivalent of food. You don't take your food costs to the health insurance. Not food, but but uh, for diabetes care or any care that is chronic, we expect insurance to pay for it. Right. Well, well, after you get past your deductible and your copay and your, your, yeah, your corresponding. Yeah. So, so what happens is that there is a subset of people that begin the year knowing no matter what I do, I'm going to blow through the deductible because I, am, I have, I have a chronic condition and I'm, I'm paying insurance and I definitely will benefit. And then there are other people, maybe you're in this category, with, that pay for it and you're insuring against some improbable event like a car accident or hit by a truck. Or so, there could be something that would happen, but it would be very unlikely. And we're all pooled together. And I think the question is why. I think it's a social construct, not, a, not an economic one. Well, I certainly agree it's not an economic construct. Right. So, so I don't think it really is insurance. It is um, something different. We call it insurance, but uh, there's, if I was going to insure you, the price would be very, like, so I drive fast because I'm a fast driver. Getting speeding tickets is sort of a, you know, cost of doing business like that. And, uh, you know, I try to be safe, but I, I drive faster than the police would like me to drive. And so 
my insurance is somewhat higher than someone who doesn't have any speeding tickets. And that's probably fair, right? Like it, it is fair to say if you do things that signal you might be more likely to have a problem, we're gonna charge you more. And in healthcare, we don't do that largely. Now, maybe smoking, there's a couple of exceptions, but in general, we don't do that. Um, and that's because we, we're, it's too personal or it's um, not, it's deemed to be not be fair. So I think that's an interesting perspective on it and it's not at all invalid. I mean, I think you've got a good point there. Um, so I, I characterize it a little bit differently, but I think we end up in the same place. Uh, the point that I make additionally in the book is that uh, a challenge is the fact that you, you don't get a chance to negotiate your insurance, right? The insurance yeah. premiums are established between the insurance company and the state department of insurance. And so the, the individual is kind of left hanging out to dry and they don't really get much to work with. And yet, uh, and so a lot of people have taken that, taken advantage of that to make it kind of a layaway plan for health is what you're kind of where you're going to as well. So yeah, you don't get to purchase it and, and you really can't figure out what anything costs. Right. I mean, one of the things the Trump administration did that was really positive is to try to push price transparency yes. out into the marketplace. It was largely not successful, but but it was a great attempt at without without an understanding of what things cost, you cannot have an efficient market. Period. Right. End of story. Right. So, um, well, and here's I, the other piece of that is the prices are actually not correct. Meaning, uh, and I you have used this example on a number of occasions. You know, my my assistant decided she needed an MRI. She was told by her doctor she needed an MRI, so she says. You know, by the way, I just read this guy Furnace's book. I need to ask you, what's your price for the MRI? And she said, and the MRI provider said, $3,200 plus $800 for the cost of the radiologist report. And she said, well, my deductible is $3,000. So that's, they said, yeah, okay, well, you pay $3,000 and the insurance company will pay the rest. She says, well, let me ask you, this guy Furnace told me that I could negotiate. What's your cash price? Answer, $562 all in, including the radiologist report. So she keeps $2,438 in her pocket to be used for other things, which may or may not include healthcare. But the stated quote unquote negotiated price, meaning that you had some 45 or 50 year old, five year old guy or person go negotiate this fantastic deal with the MRI provider that got them all the way down to $3,200. Meanwhile, soccer mom beats the crap out of that price by simply asking the question, what if I pay cash now? And it's one seventh of the cost. Yes, so that's not surprising. That's every market around the country. Every market, every service, right? Yeah. And we found that the prices can actually vary by up to 10X with the same provider in the same geography, in network. I mean, that's, yeah. a, that's straight to your point, right? Yeah, and so that is, uh... That makes the market very opaque and hard to navigate. And like you say, typically the person getting the service is not the person paying for the service. And no one has any idea about pricing. Yes, and that serves, that creates a whole bunch of other dis, uh, disadvantageous attributes of the disintermediation, right? 
In other words, you, there's information flow that doesn't occur, there's a whole bunch of other stuff. Like for example, one of the concerns I have right now is United is the largest employer of doctors in the United States. So yes. when you go into a practice that's owned by United, who are you seeing? Are you seeing the doctor or are you seeing the insurance company? To me, yeah. there's an, an implicit United comment. has um, a variety of brands. So you might um, go to a doctor that is owned by United. You're covered by United plan. Your post-acute uh, rehab is done by United counselor. There's several brands uh, and you may never leave the United ecosystem, but always be with different brands that they happen to own. And that, you know, I think, I believe they would say that uh, the government set up the rules and they're playing by them, but maybe the government should make better rules. Right? Well, and the, the other problem that you have is United may also be the owner of the drug distributor or have an ownership interest in the retail pharmacy they direct you to. And so there are, there are lots of issues in that mix. Um, let's, go, let's go out of the, the payment issue and talk a little bit about um, a demand issue that I see in, in stark relief. And I don't know if you're seeing it as well, but I feel like we haven't really done a good job as a country getting individuals engaged in their own health, meaning you know, we, gyms are a thing and they were a thing pre-COVID. Now we've got stuff that hangs on your wall and you use that and, you know, it's kind of guides you through an electronic format or Peloton or, you know, all sorts of these other things. But we really are struggling as a nation to have individuals care about their own health. I see this in the occupational health space where companies are trying to get their people onto uh, a better health program, whether it's food and, and other forms of nutrition or exercise or whatever else. And the expectation has been that some of these wearables would help, but are you seeing anything that helps with patient engagement uh, and in their own health? Um, I mean, it, it's a behavioral economic psychological need right so the the hardware the electronics in a wearable do not address that and so the the challenge is to convince me i mean take me i'm 15 pounds more than i should be convince me that i should uh delay gratification of eating a bowl of ice cream because I would like to live longer or be healthy enough to travel and see my grandkids 20 years from now. And that is something that the uh, one, the US consumer is not naturally gifted at delaying gratification. We're like an always, you know, give it to me now kind of society. I don't know if that's good or bad, it's probably bad, but it just is, right? But then the bigger issue is that there really is not anyone that is incented to make me, convince me to be healthier. Well, there are lots of people incented to have me do unhealthy things, eat, drink, do stuff, watch TV, you know, be on my phone. So. There are lots of um, advertising encouragements 
pulling me towards unhealthy things. And uh, there's lots of examples of that. Uh, and there aren't very many examples where uh, an apple farmer is trying to convince me to eat, eat an apple a day, right? There's, the incentives are not set up that way. And it would be useful to take all the influencing tactics that are used to pull me to unhealthy behaviors and turn them to the positive. So one of the things that I do in my startups is we try to align my personal ego incentive structures with health and wellness actions in a way that I don't have to pay someone to do it, that they are naturally inclined to do this thing I want them to do because it's human nature, they, they want that thing. And getting that aligned is challenging, but if you can do it, then people will naturally will behave more healthily. And so what kind of success have you had with that? It's, I've had great success when it gets, uh, when you can get it aligned that the, the reward is only attained through doing the activity. So I'll give you an example. Like I want diabetic patients to uh, take care of their feet. Unfortunately, a lot of diabetic patients end up getting their foot amputated and it's a really bad outcome for the patient course that they, they lose their foot it's also very expensive because it's, it's an expensive procedure and the um the reason it happens is that they get a very small cut in their foot and they don't have the sense of pain and so they don't really take care of it maybe they're a slight they're overweight and so they can't easily get to their feet to take care of it and so the solution we have known for decades, 50 years, is if you're a diabetic, you should have your feet checked four times a year. Really? Um, and no one wants to do that because if I'm diabetic and I have to go get my foot checked, only one or two things happen. Either I spend half a day going in to the podiatrist or the uh, doctor and get checked out and I'm fine, in which case I wasted half the day, right? Or I go in and I have a problem which is really scary. And so um, I, I would do, I'll delay that. Well, I'll do that next week. I'll do I'll always do it next week. And so we, for the state of Tennessee, we were asked to solve this problem. Um, and so we talked to a bunch of diabetic patients and realized that, you know, it's a, it's a psychological thing. They, they don't wanna be reminded that they have diabetes particularly they, there's not a lot of benefit and a lot of scary things involved with getting my foot checked. I know I should do it, but I, I don't want to do it. And so we packaged it with a group of entrepreneurs. We packaged it with um, foot massages brought to your home. So Todd, I'm not, forget, forget checking your feet for scary things. We're going to come to your house and give you a foot massage which of course has lots of spiritual, religious connotations in, in really positive ways with Jesus washing feet and um, sure. it's caring for our brothers. Um, and so we do that now, the insurance company is happy to pay for it because it's 
very cheap compared to one amputation. And you, the interesting thing about it is you cannot get the reward unless you have your foot checked. But like you, you can't get a foot massage without the, the masseuse seeing your feet. And so that, that's what I mean, like the reward has to be um, intrinsically intertwined with the, the thing I want you to do. When I give you like a Starbucks gift card, you will immediately try to cheat and take the gift card, but not do the thing, right? So like, a, I'm trying to like line up those things where you can't, you can't get away in order to get the benefit you're naturally doing the thing. Interesting. So how has that been, how has that worked? It's been great. So we, uh, we started- so this, is the, this is the untold benefit, of, is the untold benefit of having, having diabetes is you get foot problems. Yeah, well, interestingly, uh, Humana is the biggest customer, but they work with several insurance companies. They have now expanded it um, because, just like you're saying, the, the non-diabetic patients like, well, I, I want, how come, how come Todd's getting a foot massage and I'm not? Um, and they realize that this is a cheap way to, you know, check in with our patients and build rapport with them and build relationships, and then they won't jump to another insurance company. Uh, so they have begun offering it to lots of people. And it's it's inexpensive because you have pretty low licensure people. There's a small training course, but it's in it's measured in weeks. Um, and it's not that hard, right? If, if there's a bleeding ulcer, okay, maybe don't do do the foot massage and let's let's together call their doctor and try to get them help. So I mean this is not hard to determine for the worker and that and then it provides jobs for the community people that um that need need work so um it's gone very well interesting so it, do you have a, a company that does this or is yeah it's a, it's a so so i you know i'm a vc i wouldn't i don't actually do the work i help other people get it all coordinated and figure out how would we build the insurance company? How do we hire people? Um, so we, I mean, as you said early on, we get in very early. We took a, um, we took a pedicure platform that was going to like office buildings and things and giving pedicures and convinced them that, okay, that is cute, but not, I mean, how many pedicures can you get, right? Like, uh, maybe one a week would be the most. Uh, and we sort of converted them to a health focus. Um, so that, that's kind of what, uh, what I do. Interesting. Very interesting. So what else can you see on the horizon that might be helpful in on the demand generation side? Yeah, so, uh, so the first thing that COVID triggered was the telehealth thing. But then the second thing that we still are navigating through is the great resignation, like, nurses, med, really a lot of people um, left and, and kind of realized, gosh, I don't know if I like my job and COVID is scary and I'm sort of reevaluating what I'm gonna do. And that's my cliff notes for what happened. Um, and then as nurses, so 2 million nurses and med techs resigned um, and now the uh, worker shortage is dire in health systems. The, 
no one can find nurses or technicians to staff their hospitals. And we have had for 50 years, a kind of an operating model that is largely manual people, which relied on plentiful staff to come in. And there was some turnover, but there was always the next person to come in. Um, a friend of mine in Atlanta, they, they used to pay $12 for a, a med tech, which is a, you know, not, not a long licensure process, but they're coming around doing the, the basic things you need done. Um, so checking things in the hospital, bringing a new um, pillow, getting water, all the, all the, just the basic stuff, bedpans, all the not fun stuff. Um, used to pay $12 an hour and in Atlanta. And now they're paying $34 for that same job and they cannot find people. Not, there, there's no one there. And so what we are seeing on the demand side is hospitals that pre-COVID were pretty happy and didn't want a lot of innovation. Like innovation is for Soka Valley. We, we are happy here. Now they have OR operating rooms that they can't open because there aren't staff. They have uh, hundreds of open spots in their, on their floors and they can't do the business that they're used to doing. So all of a sudden now they need to find innovative solutions. We need to bring technology. We need to find new ways to do what we do with fewer people because there are no people, not no people, but there are vastly fewer people that will do what is really a hard job for the money. And a lot of people would rather work on, you know, let me work from home doing Zappos customer service and I make more money and it's easier, don't have to drive into work and I'll find my reward, not from treating patients, but from my family or friends or other things. And so that's the other big change is that these the manual processes that the system has been relying on need to change pretty quickly because there aren't people. That's amazing uh, insight and outcome. I mean, that's just, just astounding that, uh, although we see, we're seeing this in other industries as well, but not nearly to that extent where 12 goes to 34 and you can't satisfy the need. That's, that's, that's amazing. So um, I've seen a, a, a staff that, I've seen several stats on this topic, but the idea of working at home or working from home can save the individual as much as $11,000 per person per year, uh, which, you know, that's a lot of money. Uh, and so the question becomes, how do you get people back to work if, you know, they're, if that's included in the number? And I think- Yeah, I mean, a friend of mine, she loved being a kind of a trauma nurse here in Nashville, it was sort of our calling, right? Like someone comes into trauma, they, they have a lot of problems and it, it's hard work, but she felt like she was impacting the world in a positive way. She's helping these patients and their families. Um, but through COVID, it was really hard. Right? Like it, it, there's masks all the time, everyone is stressed. And it was not as fun. And then in the meantime, 
um, all of the other jobs around the community have started paying more. Um, and so she, she's a young woman. She, she's just married. She's thinking about, you know, maybe eventually I'm going to want to have children and a 12 hour shift after a 30 minute commute is it's hard to know how that's going to work with kids. And so she, she jumped to a, to a much more local kind of um, healthcare clinic. Um, it's an easier job. It's five minutes from a house. They pay more and she is getting her reward in other ways, right? She, she has a husband and, and they're building their life together and um, healthcare is traded for a long time on this like psychological pay of caring for people. And that still works in some extent, but but I think it's um, it's fraying, right? Like you can't, you have to pay people fairly. You need appropriate benefits. You need a good work environment. Um, it can't be solely reliant on the calling. All, all the stuff that those of us in the corporate world have had to deal with for you know, hundred years, it seems. Yes, that's right. That's right. We've got to balance these stakeholder interests as well. So um, we've talked a little bit about. Uh, business models. We've talked about insurance. We've talked about the demand side. Uh, what are you seeing that's innovative on the supply side? What, what I, um, the supply side is really in going to be an exciting space for the next five years. So I think we're, we're going to cure cancer in the next five years. Like there will be a cure for cancer. The cancer is not one thing. So we're going to have to cure 70 different cancers. Um, but the gene therapy, cell therapy, CAR T, there's several technologies that are coming out right now that are incredible. And it won't help you if you have cancer today, but it will help you if you're going to get cancer four years from now, five years from now, which will be incredible for our society just to see that sort of dark cloud of cancer be cured um that's going to be incredible i think a lot of the behavioral health well hold on, uh, stop, stop on cancer for just a second okay. because you know cancer is one of the biggest life takers there is in our country um imagine what that means for things like life expectancy you know yeah. we're already a lot living a lot longer than we anticipated I, I like to go back to the medicare example in 1965 when lbj signed the medicare act uh, we spent as a nation $10 billion for all of our expenses under the Medicare plan. And last year we spent $926 billion, which is a 30X increase per person. And it's because we're living longer. So, you know, we what that means is the Medicare trust, which people are still saying, all the executive agencies involved are still saying it's going to go bankrupt in 2026. Uh, is going to not, not only have to be refunded, but refunded at an unimaginable amount to, to stay helpful. Um, is in, what, what are the implications of that? That's, that's a huge yeah. idea. So and I think, that, I think um, the question, what do we do with that? That's right. I agree with that exactly. We will have, let's just say 70 treatments for a variety of cancers. Blood-based cancers will be first, and then... Uh, tumor-based cancer second, um, but they're, they're going to be expensive, right? And so 
that will extend life and it will be expensive. And you saw for the first time the Alzheimer's drug get approved by the FDA, then not approved for reimbursement by CMS. And that is going to be a trend. The um, now how how on earth how on earth does that make sense? That you got a drug that's approved for Alzheimer's and not reimbursable by CMS. Well, it make it makes sense because CMS believes they can't fund the number of people that need it. And so the I mean the the thing we're gonna have to wrestle with as a society, right, is that um, we can do incredible things in the science of healthcare now. And that is growing exponentially, right? So we're going to cure cancer. I was going to go to behavioral health. There's things in behavioral health that are going to be great. And we already spend more money than we have. And the Fed is printing money every day. Um, and I'm sure they'll keep printing it. But there, there has to be a limit to that. Like, eventually, you can't print unlimited amounts. And there, there should be some point at which we say, it's too expensive to give you this treatment. Right? So let me give you a, a, a fairly easy example. Someone is 105 years old, and they get leukemia. And we could we could we could cure it but it'll cost us i'm going to make the number up cost us forty thousand dollars to cure them and it will cure them of leukemia but they are 105 they're going to have other health problems very quickly and eventually they're going to die of something and so do we get another year and there has to be a cost-benefit analysis. In, in every other market, there is like a range of things. So, so take housing. I know we have a homeless problem, but in general, our society would say everyone should have somewhere to live, period, end of story. I, I believe that. We should, we should, we're the richest country in the world. We should give people a place to live, but they don't need to live in a castle. They don't need to live in the same house that people that have, really worked hard and built up uh, uh, net worth to live. There's a, there's a spectrum. So there's like a base level that we think all Americans or all humans should have, but you don't get an all you can eat buffet. You don't get everything because that's ridiculous. But then in healthcare, we say everyone should get everything and that doesn't work. Right? And I don't know when it's going to change, but soon, in the next five years, we're not, we can't do everything. So that begs the next question, which is, you know, A, who gets to decide? And B, how do you wrestle with the emotional intersection when it's your mother or your father or your sister or your brother or your child? Yeah. Health care, the reason I like health care is it's, uh, it's at this intersection of government business, science, and ethics, right? And so I don't know that that's my role to decide, but someone needs to decide. And we've done this with um, retirement, 
right? We, we give people social security, but we don't give them like unlimited pension funds and 401ks. So there's a basic level that we have said this, this monthly amount is not great, but sufficient. And we need some kind of measuring stick like that in healthcare. But you're exactly right. It's going to be very controversial. And no matter where you draw the line, there will be people that say, my mom is in need of care just over the line, and that's not fair. So the way that I circle back to this is I say that the best answer, I think, is to go to direct cash payments to reduce the price of as much of healthcare as is possible. And you tend to leave yourself with catastrophic risk protection in the form of insurance. And the reason for that is because as you depress price, as the market pressures come in on price for these services, they necessarily go down. They're forced to go down because of market competition. Um, what that does implicitly is it leaves more resources available to be applied to the situations you're describing. Uh, but I don't think we have the right people or the right mindsets in the people who are making these decisions and weighing in on the topic, aside from smart guys like you and me, uh, who are, you know, in, who are pulling the, the levers to make that a reality. And I think we need to kind of stand up and shout a bit louder to say, hey, wait a minute, if we don't fix this and, and lower prices for everybody, then it's not going to work for anybody. And I think that's where we're, where we're headed. That's what I'm, where I'm, where I'm fearful we're headed. We're heading for the ultimate polarity in society when it comes to healthcare, because the haves are going to have access and the have-nots are not going to have access. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think you're right. The, the impact of, I don't know what it would be, 100 million consumers negotiating for their own account with the healthcare system would would naturally drive the prices down and the, and the quality up honestly and that would be great and i don't know how we get there so my view is and my my rallying cry is an appeal to soccer moms right who are a very specific dynamic i mean a, a demographic but they make most of the healthcare decisions in the united states they make it for themselves their kids their husbands their parents, or I should say their partners and their parents. And, um, you know, my running hypothesis is if, if I tell a soccer mom at the beginning of the year, you know, put $10,000 in your HSA and whatever's left over, you get to keep and roll over to the next year. I'm pretty darn confident there's going to be money going into next year because she's going to fight tooth and nail to preserve that value for yeah. her family. Well, I mean, I'm confident that she'll spend the money very wisely. Yeah. Now, depending on how the family evolves during the year, there may be a lot of money left. There may not be money left, but she will spend it much more intelligently than someone um, negotiating contracts in, in a vacuum. Will right, right. Because they don't have the, 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 all the other issues and emotional you know, inputs that drive the decision, you know? So, and I think they'll, you know, they soccer moms typically tend to fight hard and fiercely for their families. You know, I think fathers do too, but 
Uh, so I think soccer moms may be more more tenacious than we are. So yeah. I think that that's that's an avenue. The other avenue that I've been watching, but I, I will see how it evolves, is um, large employers could could lean in and really make a difference. Yeah, and I I, I look forward to that day as well. Uh, when when we are doing more as large employers to get healthcare to our, our uh, to get people engaged in their own healthcare, better put. Um, you know, Vic, it occurs to me that uh, we're nearing the end of our time together, and there's so much more that I could talk to you about. I, I haven't gotten to to, uh, to Aristotle yet. I haven't gotten <laughs> to first principles. Yep. I haven't gotten to any number of issues. And I, I, my only request is that, can I, can I call you back and say, hey, let's do this again? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, this is a, this is a huge topic. I, I love talking about access because it's what I, what I live and involved in. So yeah, enjoyed it and we should do it again, definitely. Well, Vic, thanks so much for your time today. Uh, for all those you're watching, thank you so much for watching. And uh, as always, if you like the content, Please, please like, share, and subscribe. And uh, thank you once again, Vic. I really appreciate your being on. Yeah, enjoy it. Thanks for watching this week's episode of Civil Discourse. To learn more about today's topic or our guest, visit www.the60percentsolution.com or www.tfip.group.